0: Well, I'm happy to welcome today on the Clean Insight Symposium Extraordinaire special edition podcast episode, um, two uh, wonderful guests uh, to think about ethics and technology and computer science and how and what people should be spending their time on when it comes to measuring and analyzing and understanding their users. So uh, we have Professor James Mickens um, of Harvard University um, who I was, I've was, i been fortunate to get to know through um, being a participant and a mentor, co-mentor with him in the Berkman Klein Assembly Program, where he regularly uh, listens and provides great insights to people wanting to improve the world through technology. And I think if you see any of his YouTube uh, talks that are on YouTube or in person or have the opportunity to be a student, you'll see that he um, both cares greatly and deeply, but is also hilarious um, and uh, cuts, cuts to the bone is the, I don't know, in in, in the most hilarious way. So uh, thank you, Professor Mickens, we're really happy to have you.
1: Yeah, thank you for that great invite. I look forward to uh, the conversations that are about to emerge and hopefully some fisticuffs will happen, verbally, of course, I don't advocate real violence.
0: Right. or. Uh, you know, we were just talking about Minecraft, so you can log into my server and we'll do some diamond battle sword thing. Our know, <laughs> right. kids will have to help me. <laughs> um, and our other guest is Dr. Gina Helfrich from uh, the Program Officer for Global Technology at Internews, who has re- has been a part of the symposium in earlier podcasts and uh, shared a fantastic video of her cat doing tricks um, yesterday as part of one of our live events. Thank you for participating in the circus. But she actually has a fantastic background in... Ethics as well in within the technology industry um, and work on diversity inclusiveness, um, which has been coming to bear in our our work here. And how do we ensure our participants in our programs are um, diverse and the people we're reaching are um, have a diverse set of perspectives as well on things like measurement and analytics, as well as um, stepping back at a higher level to think about. why are we doing this at all and what is what is our point in uh, instrumenting users so thank you for being here as well Gina.
2: Thanks Nathan I'm looking forward to it.
0: The um, so uh, Mickens the the uh, project where we're kind of centered around Clean Insights was my effort within the berkman klein assembly program which is sometimes described as a 12-week hackathon um and that i was in this sort of inaugural class the prototype year and it's continued on for many years and it's meant to give people from industry and academia and um uh, open source and community and different technology projects a time to work together on hard problems and try to use their insight, be it uh, new technology or legal or research to positively impact this hard problem that we're given each year. Um, taking that and taking some of the things I've heard you say in your talks around, um, you know, well, the headlines are different from what you actually get to in your talks, but this this blend of optimism and pessimism you have and programs like Assembly, which I think are some of that blend too. um, you know, where are we today in terms of when you're talking about ethics at Harvard within things like assembly or kind of, why are we working on things and what should we be thinking about? Like, where do you feel we stand today? Either from your academic standpoint or larger, larger viewpoint of the industry.
1: Well, I think you sort of captured my opinions quite well. I think that uh, I'm sort of like this quantum superposition of great optimism and very deep-seated pessimism. Because on the one hand, like the internet enables things and technology enables things that are just completely amazing. I mean, I remember, you know, when I was a kid growing up, I would watch these sci-fi movies. I'd look at computer animation. And I'd say to myself, if one day we could get a photo realistic video of you know superman flying through a building or godzilla fighting another godzilla shaped monster that was not godzilla but a different distinct monster that would just be that'd be it i would be peaking as a human i'd be reaching mazo's higher highest you know level of actualization and we have that now you know we have these amazing video games we have this ability to you know do video calls across the world that's insane we have gps devices that we can use to figure out where we are in real time. Can you imagine in medieval days, people had to use maps? What a terrible, terrible state of affairs. So like there's all these really cool things about technology, but I think that, um, you know, it is very easy to get seduced by, you know, what can be done instead of what should be done, as a very wise uh, philosopher once said. Uh, And so I do think that ethics are becoming uh, increasingly more important to think about both when you're teaching students sort of the art and the science of uh, creating technology, and also when you're out in industry and you're looking at people who are actually producing uh, the hardware and the software that, you know, everyday people use. And so I think that there's a sort of a big problem with uh, both sort of tech academia and tech industry, although I think it's getting better, which is that there's sort of this blind spot where people aren't thinking about some of these downstream impacts of things like uh, machine learning algorithms, of things like uh, social networks. And so one of the things that I try to uh, bring up both in my teaching and also in work with you know programs like Assembly and in some of the talks I give is I try to bring some of those issues to the forefront because I think that there's some people who are well intentioned, but these issues aren't even on their radar, and so as a result, they 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 make a lot of mistakes that could be avoided if they just put some forethought into things.
0: In one of your talks, you said, "You know, don't try to convince me that you should work on deep fakes because you know we need Martin Luther King deep faked on top of Mahatma Gandhi." And at that point, I was like, "Yeah, I definitely don't need that," and I can imagine some then I can imagine some human rights campaign being like, wouldn't it be great if we could have that video to like make some message without thinking of all it takes to get there. And then I found myself laughing at, at Donald Trump deep faked on top of a screaming baby. That was a new one that just came out. And I was like, oh, that was so hilarious. Maybe we do need it just for that moment of levity and humor. Um, and 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 so you have, you. I, I myself go back and forth, but then when I do think about well, what does it take to get to that ability to deep fake, it's like well, it takes thousands of—I don't know how many. I mean, many hours of footage of people, like of humans being surveilled, in order to produce AI that can deep fake. You first have to say, yeah, a human should be submitted to this amount of kind of uh, analysis at a deep level, and is and then does that uh, the output of that, you know, is it worth it?
1: right and i mean i think you've hit on something very important you know you mentioned a couple of use cases for deep fakes so you know it would in some sense be amazing to create an avengers movie which is just civil rights leaders like with swap bodies and heads like that would be amazing i would watch that movie uh i think it'd be cool it is also sometimes fun to see people that we perceive to be our enemies have their heads swapped onto the body of a baby like there is good clean fun involved in that but I'm willing to deny those use cases. <laughs> and I think that that's, that's sort of a way of thinking that can sometimes be alien. I think particular to, particularly in the sort of Bay Area culture of let's just build a bunch of stuff and then sort of let the universe figure out which things were good and which things were bad. Like I personally feel comfortable not allowing the Avenger sequel that has you know Gandhi's head on Martin Luther King Jr.'s body, I'm fine with humanity not experiencing that. If that then means that we don't have things like revenge porn, which of course is what people are mostly going to use this technology for, so I think that there is sort of this higher level issue which is. Sort of thinking about the practical impacts of technology, not just what are the best possible things that could come out of this particular invention. Because I do think it's incumbent upon us as technologists to be thinking about these types of you know sort of uh, consequences, intended and unintended.
0: Gina, we were talking about the sort of resurrection or the use of Carrie Fisher, a young Carrie Fisher in Star Wars, as a as an artistic example of deep fakes. And in your thinking around technology and say art and expression or ethics there, do, do you agree that there should be these kinds of limitations put in place?
2: I, yes, absolutely. I agree. Um, I am definitely on board with what professor Mickens is saying about, um, the is and the ought. Uh, I think I agree. I think that there is a perspective, um, for the folks who are in Silicon Valley that once a particular technology exists, that's, it's sort of over and done. Now we have this technology, we sort of might as well optimize it, something along those lines. Um, I think it's very difficult for people who are really encompassed by the tech industry, living and breathing it every day to think that something that has been invented maybe should not be pursued, right? Or like just shut it down kind of thing. Um, And, you know, thinking about various applications, we're talking about, well, maybe that, you know, Civil Rights Avengers movie would be really awesome. I'd love to see that. But uh, when you take into consideration what is required to produce it, it seems on balance not worth it. <laughs> so, I, you know, I think there's, uh, there are many, many ways to go about uh, producing art and a lot of cool things that you can do nowadays with technology and art. But uh, I, I don't think that shutting down one, let's say one form of expression is going to be have a significant negative effect because there will be other ways of developing artistic expressions that will be different, sure, but arguably much more ethical in many of these cases.
0: So when we're reaching out to developers and young computer scientists, students, interns, I mean, Professor Mickens, what do we, are there things they should be working on um, or alternatives to the more exciting draw of something like deep fakes as a part of artificial intelligence, machine learning. Um, you know, I know Harvard has been a a ha, has a lot of great minds working on things like differential privacy. Um, how do we connect or draw, or what has your experience been? If you said, ah, you know, what is the more exciting lecture, the one you do on machine learning or the one you do on differential privacy, or are they more connected than I'm making it seem?
1: Well, I think that uh, sort of of the the high level challenge uh, is that, and I I mentioned this in several of my talks, is that I think that uh, students, young people uh, in general, they hear all these messages from you know, politicians and these captains of industry that are saying, hey, just go into technology, go into technology, young woman, go into technology, young man, this is where the future of America is. And so people wanna do that, you know, so, so students wanna learn that stuff, um, but they're also not sort of told about some of these, these pitfalls, these dangers. And so as a result, um, you know, they're very bright, these students, and they wanna learn all about these cool techniques. In, in particularly machine learning, it can be very seductive, right? Because when I was a student, I thought machine learning was very cool. I wanted to build a Terminator robot or I wanted to build like just like a, you know, a chat program. I could just ask crazy questions about philosophy to things like this. And so like these raw techniques, they're very powerful. I think people should know how to use them. But I think the, uh, the thing that's oftentimes missing is that context. And so at Harvard and a bunch of other schools, uh computer science departments are starting to try to embed ethics into the computer science curriculum not just as oh there's this one class you have to take before you graduate um, and you just sort of check that box off but instead sort of incorporating ethics as a thing that is taught in most or all of the classes and it's taught in a class specific way so for example You know, if you uh, take a machine learning class, then maybe uh, you'll have uh, a lecture about the dangers of using machine learning to uh, do predictive policing. If you're in an operating systems class, maybe you'll talk about the ethical uh, impacts of bugs. You know, what happens when um, you've got some ship schedule from your manager, they want to aggressively release things um, to the market. But you as a dev know that there are bugs there, bugs that may cause crashes or data corruption. What's your sort of ethical uh, duty to the consumer there? So I think that's that's one of the things that I think is very important um, when trying to teach people these, these computational or technological skills, actually being explicit and upfront about the fact that even though you may consider yourself an engineer, that's what you say in your business card, for example, uh, you also have to consider these other sort of larger Um, issues. I think that when you look at stuff like differential privacy, I think intellectually, it's just as interesting um, as machine learning, Uh, if not more in a certain sense, because a lot of machine learning, I mean, (laughs) we can just be honest with each other. I feel this is like, you know, fireside chat. I mean, much of machine learning, the math behind that's completely opaque. And essentially what you're doing is you're teaching some function to memorize data. Whereas things like differential privacy actually have a much stronger theoretical foundation in terms of how the math works. So I think intellectually speaking, a lot of technologies that we might call privacy preserving or sort of more respectful of of user rights, whatever term you want to use, those things are just as interesting intellectually as sort of these black box ML techniques.
2: Can I have a follow-up question to that, actually? Um, I am really glad to see all of the integration of ethics into computer science curricula I wonder, though, what that looks like at the professional level, because, you know, as we all know, in technology, there's a huge cohort of people who are essentially self-taught or they're going through these boot camps. And I just wonder how how do these lessons in ethics and ethical processes, thinking about ethical outcomes of what we're building, propagate through the wider technologist community?
1: I think it's a great question, and I don't think that there's a good answer for that yet. Um, and I think it, it's, it's very relevant because you're right. There are a lot of people out there who are sort of self-taught or who didn't go through quote-unquote classical methods um, to get their technology education. Um, I think that one thing that can be very helpful is to have big corporations try to lead by example and show that they actually care about ethical issues uh, and show that they actually Uh, are interested in putting some of these ethical theories into practice. Um, You know, I know a lot of the the bigger software companies like Google and Microsoft and Facebook, you know, they have groups that are devoted um, to doing things like um, looking at issues of fairness in AI, for example. And so I think that's very important. But I think you're right that there's more that the community could do to try to bring... Sort of these ethical teachings to a larger audience. So, for example, like if you look at a lot of like open source packages for doing machine learning, um, you know those those open source packages typically don't have, you know, sort of like a part of the readme or a part of the documentation that's a warning that says, "Hey, by the way, we've just taught you how to use these amazing you know data mining tools. Here are some situations in which you might not want to data mine." Right. I mean, I would be personally happy if that's all that we if all we did. That the only intervention is that in every piece of software that's out there, there's a part of the manual, there's a chapter that says, here's when not to use that software. That would be a huge gain because right now these 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 technologies are sort of treated as just go crazy. Just explore the studio space, just start rocking out, you know, something's gonna be great that comes out in the studio. And that's not always the case. Um so I think you know, getting to a place where where we think like that sort of as a, as technologists, I think it will require a little bit more humility than we currently have, because I think that we're all sort of, we've been taught by the stock market and things like this to say, oh, well, you know, we're sort of the the modern masters of the universe. What could we do wrong? Well, as it turns out, we could do a lot of stuff that's wrong, and we should just sort of introspect about that stuff a little more.
0: And that brings me to thinking about, you know, the some of the open source projects that we work with where their their pitch is basic basically you know we are like x that big scary thing except you run it yourself so matomo formerly known as Piwik, is we are google google analytics but you host it yourself and and which is fine because you're a good person you know um but it essentially can do all the things google analytics does in terms of tracking every single little tap and click and Scroll and swipe. Um, there's no ethical difference other than maybe decentralization of data, and you know it's it's uh, creating less capability or incentive to misuse that data because it's tied to the site or service that the user is already connected with. And and that reminds me of this New York Times news from yesterday where they said, "Well, no more third-party ad data." Um, Instead, we'll use first-party, proprietary, self-hosted data because, you know, we've been spying on, you know, we know everything about you anyway. Why do we need that? There's an interesting moment of like, oh, that's cool technologically. In fact, we talked to the New York Times during the development of Clean Insights. Um, but just is it any different ultimately because, you know, oh, I'm using some open source thing or uh, we're, New York Times is now doing it themselves. Have they considered any ethical differences in what they're measuring and why I guess and uh, I don't think so
2: well I don't know maybe I, I think there's two parts of it right so one to me one part is maybe there is an ethical valence to choosing not to buy data effectively on the people who come to the New York Times website um, and so if they are collect if people are already coming to the Times website and then, they can make choices, right? I think that's the whole point about clean insights. In principle, they can make choices about how they want to measure that traffic and those interactions, which could be done in a more privacy-preserving way, theoretically. Uh, but the, the choice itself, I I think, is a step in the right direction, to be honest. The, the more that Um, commodification of, you know, user behavior is uh, shunned, I think, the better.
1: Yeah, I think the thing that's interesting about the New York Times case, which they even sort of say in that in the article where New York Times, you know, or Axios, whoever reports on the fact that New York Times is going towards first party analytics, New York Times says explicitly, the reason we can do this is because we're working at scale. Like the reason why this works for us is because we already have a panopticon of sufficient size that we can sort of monetize the insights that we want to gather. And so that's not always the case, right? Like not everybody is is working at the scale of, of, of New York Times. Not everybody has sort of a dev team, like the one that the New York Times could assemble to create this little you know, terrarium, which the New York Times, you know, assures us will be more privacy protecting. So to be clear, I do think that this is this is better than the status quo. I do think that um, this will help individual organizations uh, like the New York Times to more clearly articulate and then enforce their own values about how data should be shared. However, I do think that one problem still is that there is, from the perspective of an end user, there is still a lack of transparency. And by lack of transparency, I mean that even if I go to the New York Times and I really dig what they're doing uh, and I look at their EULA and they tell me you know, this, that, and the other, I still don't actually understand how my data is being analyzed on the back backend, um, nor do I fully understand what the, the consequences of that are. And there, part of this problem is just sort of like a quote unquote hard tech problem. How do you actually expose the workings of like, a, you know, an ad tech backend uh, to an end client? And we could, we could think of like, you know, just purely technical mechanisms to try to open some of that up. But there's also sort of like a, a pedagogical challenge, which is that even if you could open up the ad tech backend and expose everything that's happening there. How could you possibly present that to a layperson user or even to someone who's technologically sophisticated and allow them to reason about that in some way? So like there's this, there's this explanatory power that we also lack as well. And I think that if you look at you know ad tech right now, I do think that in general, a lot of people don't fully understand how it works. They know that there's some algorithms that do ad bidding and there's some targeting algorithms, but like at a high level, there's no single person who's like, yes. I understand exactly why James Mickens was shown this ad for pizza flavored Pringles. I mean, I personally know why that happened because I'll eat an entire <laughs> sleep of those things like nobody's business. That's not good for me long term. But like at sort of the larger level, it's it's really interesting. I think to try to figure out how we can uh, expose these currently opaque ad tech systems, and then also how can we then explain what's happening. To both laypeople and, in fact, to developers who might want to do the right thing but don't currently understand how this whole ecosystem works.
0: Another aspect of Clean Insights is focusing on um, security and just, you know, looking at how um, reliance on third-party systems that maybe don't have the same threat models or um, uh, hardening of their, you know, HTTPS stack and things like that. Um, could be a problem and you know and so how do we get to the point when you know going to a website involves loading 30 javascripts from 30 different websites like how did we end up there and you know is that a a normal thing now that you know and and are we is there a way out of that you know or is that just is that part of the beauty beautiful decentralization of the web that you can connect to so many servers simultaneously to load little bits of executable code that do all these crazy things or are we, do we also need to find a way away from that
1: well nathan we're living in the worst possible timeline next question <laughs> I mean, yeah that's 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 a problem right i mean i think but i think it's 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 instructive to think about why this ecosystem of a web page being this sort of accumulation of little pieces of cruft from all over the internet like, why did this happen? I mean, technologically, I think that one thing about the modern web is that, you know, JavaScript and HTML and CSS won out over more, quote unquote, principled technologies, because they're easy to prototype stuff in. And it's very, those technologies make it very easy to, you know, publish stuff and make things accessible. You know, if you remember, like, back in the, uh, the dark old days of the web, do you remember this language called Java? And it also had applets, mm-hmm. And so, you know, Java is sort of like, you know, the principled person's language. Look at all the, the strong types. And, you know, it's, this is great. There's exceptions you have to catch and you know, all this kind of stuff. And, you know, then you look at, let's say, JavaScript and HTML, it's just a clown down. I mean, good Lord. Like you can, you know, just dynamic typing, you know, your program can be throwing exceptions left and right, but somehow still the page loads, what's going on there? And so from, from sort of like the, the, the purest perspective, The current web stack that we have now, particularly on the client side, is a disaster. It's a disaster. And yet it has some really nice features. For example, you know, I can be prototyping a web page. Maybe I get some of my HTML tags a little bit wrong. Maybe I get some of my JavaScript a little bit wrong. My JavaScript code may not even run. And yet I can still load the web page, right? I'll still probably see something on the screen. And so the fact that... uh, you know, the, the the current web stack is kind of like the Star Wars cantina. Like you can kind of just, you know, cobble together anything and it'll sort of kind of work in this creaking manner. I think that's very instructive for, under, uh, for, for understanding why these technologies that or ugly have won in a certain sense. So, you know, getting back to your, your question about, you know, how do we get to this world and, you know, how do we maybe improve the current technology stack? I think it's very interesting to think about how can we create technologies that further some, you know, let's say aesthetic goal or further some privacy goal, some security goal, and yet still make it easy to prototype stuff, to push stuff out to the public. You know, like one thing like I sort of oftentimes think about here is like Rust, the programming language. So I don't want to, you know, turn this podcast into me ranting about Rust. But suffice it to say that, you know, Rust is a new programming language, newish, that tries to provide um, more security, tries to make programs more robust. But it also has a very, very high learning curve. And so these two things are at tension, right? Because on the one hand, you really would prefer for your code to have properties like memory safety that Rust provides. But on the other hand, if you have to spend, you know, six years of your life reading a Rust book before you can write the Hello World program, that probably means you're not gonna build your next greatest thing in Rust. And so there's a tension there. So I think that as technologists, we should think about um, sort of maybe our interfaces a little bit more intentionally and try to figure out how we can use those interfaces to nudge people towards, for example, uh, respecting privacy.
2: Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. Uh, there's a couple of things that kind of jump out to me about this when you sort of zoom out a little bit from the technologist perspective. So, um, for one, I think the way that development happens, um, sort of hidden from the generic non-technical user, is one of the ways that we got to where we are. Because if all of you know, twenty some odd JavaScript, uh, you know, applications that are running on a page were visible to your everyday user. I'm not sure that we would have arrived at this spot because everyone would have said, like, "Hey, what the heck?" <laughs> and the other aspect, I think, going way back—this is not my insight; somebody else raised this—is that you had at the the origins of the web in sort of the dark ages uh, this um, open source philosophy vision that the web had to be free, right? The internet has to be free in order to let a thousand flowers bloom. And the way to make the internet free is just to run it on ads. And so at the inception of this whole thing, the ad-based model was baked in, I think, without... uh, very much imagination for how that might go sideways. And so now I think at least many people are trying to sort of claw back from what this has grown into, you know, as you say like we're on the worst possible timeline. Um and so I I think it's we're still figuring out how to do that well. I mean, news and journalist organizations are Uh, on the forefront of this, for better or for worse, trying to figure out how to sustain themselves as primarily digital organizations uh, and get people to pay for the news um, so that it's not solely or primarily ad funded anymore. But more and more, I think the notion is starting to become more common that we, we have to pay for subscriptions to things now. It's not all free anymore because we, as a society, have started to understand what comes along with everything being free.
0: And we've seen some progress there um, from companies like Brave um, that are doing really fascinating sort of hacks into the third-party JavaScript um ecosystem and the advertising ecosystem and while using the other you know uh trendy thing of a coin of some kind to uh earn and pay for these things and really trying to paint what a privacy-oriented browser that still makes money for people would look like you know I, i think it there's there are there are some either valiant efforts out there or or um tilting at windmills kind of efforts. But I've been happy with how long someone like Brave has lasted and kind of continued to get some traction with their approach, even though they kind of get snarked at because they're like, oh, so you block all the ads just so you can sell me your own um, is the shorthand for what Brave is doing. But if you look deeper, I think they have one of the, they have an approach that seems plausible. Uh, versus, you know, the other thing I was, you know, I don't know, we were talking before about ads and are they necessary and versus the kind of the old school ads and I was going to say that you know I think my I I'm drawn to rhubarb pie solely because of listening to Prairie Home Companion with my parents for so many years and he, hearing this the jingle about rhubarb pie so um, some some of the old school ways of marketing and selling can still work
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, along those lines, you look at um, DuckDuckGo, right, as an internet search engine that is uh, forefronting privacy for users and selling ads based on keywords. And they are still trucking after a number of years. So uh, I think that's quite a compliment to them, um, particularly given, you know, Google and their market share on internet search. Um, There's also some I, from what I can tell there's there's also some question out there about the effectiveness and ROI of targeted advertising full stop um, a number you know if you go kind of search around for articles on does targeted advertising work uh, you know you can find a number of instances of companies including the New York Times uh, that have pulled back their targeted ad spend reinvested it in other forms of advertising and saw better results for less effectively
0: so we'll see so with clean insights you know we're doing this as a selfish act in that a lot of the work we invent for ourselves initially you know things we worked on with a sql cipher to add an encrypted sqlite or key management or encrypted file systems on mobile or hardening of mobile tls communication these are all things we needed um, for our own, you know, goals and applications, and same with Clean Insights is we're saying ah oh, within our space within human rights humanitarian space, there's a need to measure your adoption and usage and are you being successful and that's one kind of measurement that's sort of, you know, a- analytics about usage of your app, or and what's working and what's failing versus measuring your users to understand what their interests are and how you might market to them. Um, Professor Mickens, do you think our approach, I mean, will feel successful if it works for us. um, And we have some adoption within our space. Do you think that now is a good time? Or what are what are our chances for being you know, a a more private Google Analytics if we were to market that uh, more broadly?
1: Well, I just want to say that uh, I hope you succeed. You know, I've got those early clean insight stock options, so you know this is my ticket to getting a yacht, so I hope that you're successful. I think that you know the, the 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 tricky thing with all of the approaches or all of the sort of desires to go privacy preserving, it's related to something that that Gina brought up. So do we believe that protecting privacy, will allow us to either, for example, generate as much ad revenue or as good of insights as we would have gotten if we weren't doing it in a privacy-preserving way, or maybe the quality of our insights. So for example, the quality of our ad targeting, the the, the quality of our analytics is less, but we are getting something else uh, in exchange for that. And so I think this is oftentimes the tension that I hear when I, for example, go out to the Bay Area and when I talk to people about, um, you know, for example, why are you collecting so much user data? Uh, why are you tracking so much activity that users do on your sites? What's the ultimate goal of it? Um, and there's some people who respond, they just say, well, we just we just get worried if we don't track it. What if we need it later? Which is like kind of a bad answer. But for people who have thought about it a little bit more, they will oftentimes claim that, oh, this allows us to get better, you know, something, where that's something they relate to either money, like revenue, or to some other goal of, uh, you know, that, that, that tries to please the user in some way. And so, you know, I think that it might be useful to think about the analytics market in terms of sort of like that dichotomy that sort of you you express, where it's like, well, there's there's, there's sometimes the analytics where you just want to know how the app is being used. And in a certain sense, this is not uh, being used to drive revenue stuff, like it's not being used to target ads. It's more to just improve the service. And so maybe you're willing to uh, put up a little bit of fuzziness there because uh, it's not affecting your bottom line directly or as much. I think that if you wanted, though, to use... Um, You know, analytics to either drive ads or to try to do like sort of fine grained, granular analytic understanding of how, you know, particular subsets of users do things. I think there are limits to that. So, you know, differential privacy by its very nature, for example, has some trade offs in terms of the specificity with which you can examine um, the behavior of any particular uh, person. So, I think that that Clean Insights has actually hit a pretty good sort of spot in, in that trade off there. Um, I think what would be interesting is to go to people who use Google Analytics and say, why do you actually think that you need Google Analytics? My intuition, and I don't have survey data on this, but my intuition just sort of anecdotally having having talked to people is that a lot of the things that um, people use Google Analytics for, the types of stats they're trying to collect, you could use a clean insight style approach to get those same stats. That's my intuition. So I think there might actually be sort of a, a, a space in which uh, clean insights can sort of um, um, speak to you or so, sort of sort of provide uh, services to people who right now would say, "Oh, well, really, Google Analytics is the only thing in town."
0: And it's interesting again within sort of humanitarian or you know um, grant funded world. There's often very specific indicators that have to be measured, right? So it does work in that case because they said, "Well, can you measure this indicator?" Yes um and so the the conversation is usually fairly quick when it's more of the we're not quite sure yet can you measure lots of things then we have a longer discussion um the there i mean there's other been other signs of progress you know apple famously with their um differential privacy usage and google um, were inspirations for our work um and you know we've seen whatsapp take steps towards, you know, really adopting encryption um, at the the content level, even though they're heavily uh, monitoring users and linking all sorts of other metadata. Um, And then most recently within the response uh, for the pandemic, we've seen this curious and fascinating and fantastic collaboration between Google and Apple to implement this very, you know, in some ways very restricted, limited, capability to do this exposure notification. And this is from companies that have pushed out into the world Bluetooth beacon systems for shopping malls. And yet, when it comes here, they're like really afraid of governments maybe getting too... You know, it's been just interesting, this back and forth where you have the trusted government civic institutions saying, we need more surveillance. And you have the, the tech companies really thwarting them. And I guess Apple's been doing that. So what's your feeling on the stance that Google and Apple have taken um, within the exposure notification contact tracing realm?
1: Well, I think that, I mean, this is, this is where this, this tension between my optimism and pessimism pessimism comes into play because I think that um, there's part of the contract tracing story where they're they're looking for some good press um, and they're trying to recast this vast sort of ability to surveil people as, well, look, oh, we can also do good stuff too, right? So like you may have heard of this recent story where there was, in China, there was a kid who had been kidnapped when he was very, very young, maybe 30 years ago. And he was recently reunited with his mother because the Chinese government was able to use facial recognition software to age a photo of the child forward by 30 years and then search their database of faces uh to try to figure out who who, who this kid might, might might be now. And so there's this huge press conference and it was it's a very heartwarming story. But you know if you if you sort of peel the layers back a little bit, what this shows is that wow, China's surveillance system is huge. And the fact that they can do sort of face matching against you know hundreds of millions of, of Canada faces, that's actually pretty pretty scary. And so I think that you know when you look at the contact tracing stuff with, uh, with Google and Apple, you know on the one hand I think it's 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 great i'm glad that they are trying to use some of these capabilities for uh, social good. However, just like in the China case, it sort of reveals that you know behind the scenes there's this vast infrastructure for collecting data i mean I think that Apple has been um, more aggressive in trying to protect that data. You know, for example, it'll, it'll manipulate certain user information using keys that are only stored on the end devices, such that, you know, Apple Central does, literally doesn't know what those keys are. I think that's great. Um, but I think this is a case where it, it, should, it should sort of uh, prompt some, some reflection about the fact that, oh, well, if Google and Apple can do this contract, uh, contact tracing stuff now, what else could they do with that data once the pandemic is over? Do we really think that it's a good idea to have that capability residing in, in companies which are not elected, right? They aren't sort of responsive to people in the same way that a government would be.
2: The Times has actually done some really great reporting on this prior even to the pandemic, looking at uh, the types of insights and identification um, that can be drawn from this very granular location-based data. Um, so the, I think the attempt to shine a light and hold accountable um, is there and has been there even prior to the pandemic. I do think it's going to be even more important uh, post-pandemic. I think, Nathan, you were talking about trying to launch a hashtag of uninstall COVID <laughs> for these tracking tracking efforts
0: yeah and the, i keep wanting to tell people about i mean google Takeout, for example most still so many people don't realize how much data google has and that you can get it and you can see it and often when someone comes and says oh could you build an app that lets me you know map my whole day I'm like just Google Takeout, it's there, um, and it's it's this sort of dual perspective of yeah, th- they have the data, but you know they can't give that data out, and I'm happy that they've provided a solution that is privacy preserving by default. Um, Yet yeah, it's true they they have all. Of, I mean, it's you know I do use Google Photos my for my family pictures. My wife's phone backs up to it, and you know it, it it's just still shocking when you know it connects a photo of your kid when they were two with a photo of kid when they're 10 you know and, and those things are I, it goes back to the start of our conversation like boy when every year when it's her birthday and google produces that video of like look how they've grown up and just automatically makes that you're like oh my god it's amazing how did they do that and then you're like did i really need that do do i need and and i i say no actually i I don't enjoy those videos anymore because they're they're not really authentic. And I enjoy all the videos that I've made by hand, um, which are more real, as opposed to these sort of automated montages that some company thinks we all want. It's the hallmark card of you know it's it's you got the hallmark card video that was just picked off a shelf by made by a computer, as opposed to like all the the, the things that I've made. And so again, things that at first seem shiny. This, this amazing search by face um, kind of reveal how hollow they are often.
1: And it kind of makes you feel paranoid, too, about like, you know, what am I unwittingly revealing to these services? Like, you know, you go on Facebook and there are all of these sort of like um, fun little things that just sort of happen, quote unquote, organically. It's like, hey, post a, a crazy photo of your craziest party experience from 10th grade. And like, that all seems fun. But then all of a sudden, we realize that, you know, uh, Facebook can, you know, uh, identify whether we're in a photo based on analysis of the oxygen molecules that, you know, we breathed inside that photo. Like, how did that happen? And you get the suspicion, well, maybe it's happened because I've shared, you know, sort of like a, a fun meme or something like that, that was used to glean insights from me. And I do agree that that kind of, it leaves you with a bit of a sick feeling. Because you're like, wow, it seems like even this very sort of heartwarming thing is actually being driven by this super deep uh, data mining economy, which is maybe something that I haven't been given the chance to explicitly opt into or not.
0: And there's definitely times I opt in, you know, for, and I think of the trade-offs, you know, and and there's times when I'm like, I better go and I really like this little cafe that's local to us. I want to make sure they show up in Google well. I'm going to go and like post a photo and review it because I know how it works And I want to help them within the grand scheme of how our planet works, Um, you know, and then by you then see reports during, again, the pandemic when restaurants are trying to get delivery service and they're getting orders through Grubhub that they're not even signed up for or, you know, some other automated service uh and they said well how come you didn't order from us directly well i didn't find your website i just saw you in this website that google let uh, sent me to because you know that's how you order food and so these systems get put in place that we're not aware of often and again within our internet freedom human rights humanitarian space it's clear we want to avoid these traps and we need alternative better systems you know signal uh, the encrypted messaging app was built with that kind of context in mind and was funded out of that context and now has per- percolated uh, and grown out into the broader world um, with end-to-end encrypted content. So we do have some you know, hope and, and even our own work uh, with the SQL Cypher has been adopted by Tencent of all people in some cases. So the need for better encrypted data storage on a phone is uh is very universal and hopefully we've had some impact there um what are you working on professor mickens i've heard some of the things and talks you've given i mean you build big systems you design things that are you know at the scale of of a google or in terms of thinking about the cloud and infrastructure and how software should be built you know what is on the horizon for you or right now that you hope can move things in the world
1: uh, well, one project that I'm working on now that I'm pretty excited about, um, it's 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 about providing um, sort of technological mechanisms to make it easier for a user to be deleted from a large scale service. Uh, and so this work was, you know, partially inspired by some of these laws like GDPR, which gives people this right to be forgotten. Well, that's very nice that we have this right to be forgotten, but of course, how is that right going to be implemented? on the back end? How's it going to be sort of recognized in terms of software and hardware? And as it turns out, this is a very tricky problem, right? It's actually very tricky to even enumerate all of your data uh, and find out where it lives in various pieces of an online service. It's even trickier to figure out what pieces of information were derived from your data you know, things that are not pieces of information that you submitted directly, but were gleaned via machine learning or, you know, other types of like uh, data analysis and extraction. And so what we're working on right now uh, is my group is looking at uh, essentially uh, programming languages and runtimes that would allow developers to uh, intentionally create software that makes it easy to delete users and delete users in a way that doesn't Uh, sort of break the rest of the application. And so we think this is very very important. If we could get this right, then we think this would actually dramatically lower the barrier to creating applications that respect uh, user's privacy and that respect uh, user requests to be deleted. Um, And so that's one thing I'm pretty uh, excited about. And I hope eventually that we would be able to um, use this mechanism to uh build things like let's say a better uh signal server right so so signal does still have um some some infrastructure in the cloud that is used to help coordinate rendezvous requests and stuff like that so wouldn't it be cool if you could have a version of that software um, that sort of performs that coordination that you know if you decide to delete signal or whatever your secure messaging app is then almost immediately the signal server in the cloud could just splice out all of your data that it is associated with, you know, your public key. That'd be really cool because I think that would then make a service like Signal much more resilient to any type of sort of forensics that, you know, let's say some a malicious government might want to perform. So that's, that's one of the projects I'm the most uh, excited about to be working on right now.
0: Gina, did you had some thoughts on that?
2: Uh. That sounds great. I I was thinking actually about earlier in our conversation, um, just even maybe Signal is a great example, right? Like increasingly, at least a subset uh, of society is adopting, intentionally adopting more secure and privacy focused uh, applications, right? Like, oh, yeah. Encrypted communication, and maybe I don't want, you know, my ISP like reading my messages. Um, I I think it, there's a travesty there. Going back to being on the worst timeline, that um, increasingly it seems like certain actors are really pushing the point of view that literally anything that you do or publish, you know, pu- semi publicly, uh, is essentially Freely available to be mined for capitalist purposes. So you've got like Clearview AI as perhaps the representative example here, where, you know, my LinkedIn profile, for example, was being sort of used against me to put my image into this facial recognition system in a way that I absolutely never would have, uh, you know, accepted or consented to. Um, but the the argument that I see being made by folks who think that's perfectly OK is, well, you shouldn't have published it if you didn't want it to be used that way. And I, I think the notion that we to protect ourselves, we have to sort of load up on all of these privacy focused apps and, you know, use use Brave or use uh, an operating system like kalix or just basically I kind of envisioning like a metaphorical suit of like encryption armor <laughs> and anonymization armor to protect ourselves from, from being uh, a mind effectively. Um, it's not a very sustainable way forward and only a very narrow Privileged few will even be able to accomplish as much. Uh, so, you know, the the type of ethics in computer science curriculum that Professor Mickens has talked about, and I think even to a certain degree, development of tools like Clean Insights that really encourage the technologists and the builders of these things to consider these types of questions is incredibly important.
0: For sure, and pioneering new features like removable data or whatever you'll you'll tag it with um you know that's already made me think huh we need that in clean insights i mean and i know how it's possible because you do kind of generate these disposable tokens that are your data is tagged with and you could store those and then we could have a some authentication around that and so i I think you know we all need to push this and we need Great you know, academic minds and students and research projects to push us um, along with new laws like GDPR and uh, you know funding like that supports us and uh, groups like Signal um, so we can put it all together and and uh, make I think you said armor I, you know in Minecraft it's di- enchanted diamond armor is the the, the uh, top level you can get I know this because my children are often. Uh, worrying, complaining, crying, or arguing you know arguing about who has the more pieces of diamond armor before their next quest. so it's already out there in the mindset that you need this armor. We just have to translate that to the web
2: well, yes, I, I mean absolutely, I want everyone to be able to have diamond armor if so desired, but i I think I also would hope that through you know, activist efforts and citizen lobbying efforts, we could get to a point where the the need for such armor is quite lessened.
0: Yeah. Well, that's about time for today. Um, really enjoyed this conversation. Um, any exciting talks, YouTube talks coming up, Professor Mickens? What's the near future coming, uh, looking like for those Folks who really enjoy seeing you online.
1: Uh, so I hope this uh, summer to focus more on some writing. Actually, um, so mm. I hope to uh, write up some of my experiences with Rust, learning that programming language that I mentioned earlier. Uh, so I think that because I'll probably most likely be staying at home uh, for the majority of summer, I'm um, just due to you know current events. I'd really like to get back to uh, you know the joys of authorship, staring at that blank editor and then waiting for Zeus to fill in the words and then realizing that's not going to happen because Zeus isn't real. The burden falls on me.
0: But you love social media, right? I thought you're going to be on TikTok. Oh God, TikTok,
1: all that kind of stuff. If you see me on TikTok, that's a sign that the apocalypse is not. I can guarantee you that right (laughs) now.
0: Or it was deep (laughs) fake.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's right. If you see like uh, like my face on Gandhi's body, I mean, I do actually have a very similar build. So that's maybe not the best signal, but uh,
0: all right well well uh writing about rust is amazing yeah we're that's definitely a key development we're all working on so it'd be great to have your insights gina thank you as well for your uh important voice and a broader perspective on things being a part of this conversation um The Symposium Extraordinaire continues. This has uh, been, we're in week two here. We've got the um, new dashboard activity for imagining your own uh, dashboards. And so check that out. We have some other great panels and work sessions this week. And uh, more and more will be rolling on. So that's it for today. Thanks for listening and see you at cleaninsights.org.